Hi, I'm Zach Davis, host of Jesuitical. As we've been preparing for Jesuitical's pilgrimage this coming September to Italy, OneDream has made all the difference. OneDream is this amazing educational platform with audio and video content on just about any topic, including Italy, presented by experts who all know their stuff. And OneDream is giving Jesuitical listeners a great offer, a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. Sign up now at OneDream.com slash Jesuitical, and we hope we'll see you in Italy. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you one final time for this season of Jesuitical, Ashley. I know. I can't believe this season just flew by, and it was such a great one. We started off really strong with Father Greg Boyle, you know, the famous Jesuit of Homeboy Industries, and then touched on just like such a wide range of issues that you wouldn't think you would find in a Catholic space. And I just love like looking back and being like, oh yeah, we talked about Catholic tattoos and marriage prep and Jane Austen and the life of a married priest, like so many things. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to lie. Very excited that summer is here. <laughs> I love doing the show. I know we both do, but it can be a grind trying mm-hmm. to put this out every week. But you're right. Looking back, it's like, I'm really grateful that the conversation's been able to have. I, I'm looking at all the things you said, plus we were able to talk with some more bishops this year. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a, a theme. If you go back and listen to those, those were really fun and light conversations. But it's there's so much stuff going on in the church and in the world. And as you said, these are conversations that are, aren't always being, you know, put front and center in Catholic spaces. And so one of the graces of my job is being able to be part of those conversations, talk to people that are way smarter, way holier than I am. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to miss it this summer. We won't be completely gone. We'll be popping in social media, Patreon, those types of things with some stuff. But uh, it's going to be a good take a break from yeah. the show. Yeah. And just like we reviewed the past season and found our favorite conversations, the highs and lows, we hope that our listeners do that too so that we can come back in September with knowing what you like, what you want to see more of. So please, if you haven't yet, it's not too late to take the listener survey. Yep. That's in the show notes. Click on it. It takes like five, 10 minutes, 10 minutes if you're taking your time, but I've seen people do it in five. (laughs) But we've got one final great show ready for you this week, right, Ashley? Yes, we are talking to Rebecca Jennings. She's a senior correspondent at Vox in what's called the Good Section, where she covers social media platforms, influencers, and the creator economy. And we are talking to her about her recent June 15th article titled, How Catholicism Became a Meme. Yeah, this is something I've seen before where people talk about how weird Catholicism is compared to other religions, but it's taken on this new flavor with the TikTok generation that I don't really understand. And so was really excited to talk to Rebecca about this as someone who, you know, covers this in depth. Yeah, no, I would consider myself moderately online. Like I'm aware of Twitter and TikTok, but I, I see some of these things and I'm like, Gen Z has a whole different aesthetic and way of interacting with the Catholic faith that is kind of alien to me, but I'm fascinated by. So I'm really happy to talk to Rebecca, who is an expert on all things TikTok. Yes. And she gave us a great drink recommendation this week. Yes, and it's named after her, I presume. It's called the Jennings. <laughs> yeah, she, she ordered this enough that a bartender named it after her, Which and it's delicious. I mean, as soon as I saw this recipe, it's vodka soda with a splash of Saint-Germain and a lime. And like a splash of Saint-Germain in any cocktail is just like yes. chef's kiss. Perfect for our first, it's uh, yesterday was the first 
day of summer. Officially, and so, so this sounds very refreshing. Cheers. Cheers. So stick around for our conversation with Rebecca Jennings. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Zach, have you read the Gospel of Judas? I've not. I haven't either. I didn't even know it existed. But then I started watching this course on Wondrium called Gnosticism from Nag Hammadi to the Gospel of Judas. And it does a deep dive into Gnosticism, which Catholics consider a heresy. It's something Pope Francis mentions a lot. And so I wanted to get a better idea about what it was. And thankfully, Wondrium has a very exhaustive course tracing this worldview and how it's interacted with the Christianity, especially in the first three centuries. You know, that's good because Gnosticism is typically a word that I use a lot to show that I have a theology degree, <laughs> but don't really understand. So I am very interested to get into this course. Yes. So we love Wondrium for this course and so many others. They have audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors, along with documentaries to help you learn about the world around you. And all of it is taught by world-class, incredible professionals. Yeah, and we know you'll benefit from Wondrium too, and that's why we want you to sign up today. And Wondrium is offering our listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. And to get this offer, you need to visit our special URL. That's wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. Sign up today. And now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story this week, Zach? Our first story is pretty sobering. Two Jesuit priests, Fathers Javier Campos Morales and Joaquin Cesar Mora Salazar, were killed inside a Catholic church on Monday in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. Yes, so the Mexican Provincial for the Society of Jesus put out a statement saying that the priests were murdered in their church trying to protect a man who was fleeing an armed person. And the armed gunmen pursued him into the church, killing both that man, who apparently was a tour guide, along with these two priests who were giving him refuge. Yeah. And Pope Francis put out a statement expressing his shock and sorrow over the killing, because as you probably know, Pope Francis is a member of the Jesuit order. And he said, I'm close in prayer and affection to the Catholic community hit by this tragedy. Once more, I repeat that violence does not resolve problems, but increases episodes of suffering. Yeah. So we want to talk about this in the broader context of being a Catholic in Mexico. It's actually the most dangerous place to be a priest in Latin America. Dozens of priests have been killed over the last 15 years, kind of as innocent bystanders and victims of the drug war that has plagued Mexico, especially since 2006. Yeah. The Jesuits have been in this region since the 1600s. They're expelled by Spain in 1767, and they returned again at the beginning of the 20th century. And this isn't the first time that Mexico has like, seen some anti-clerical violence, right? The 20th century is also racked by a lot of this. But the Jesuits killed this week in Mexico were serving in exploited, marginalized areas that are really plagued by poverty and violence, which is not unlike the Jesuits killed in El Salvador during El Salvador's civil war. Right. So during El Salvador's civil war, which raged from 1979 to 1992, religious people were often caught in the crosshairs. Beginning in 1977, the Jesuit priest Rutilio Grande was assassinated 
by right-wing death squads. He was actually beatified earlier this year. Just three years later, St. Oscar Romero, not a Jesuit, but a Catholic priest and archbishop, was killed while saying mass, again, by right-wing death squads. And then in 1989, six Jesuits at the Central American University in San Salvador were killed, along with two members of their household. So there is a long history of Jesuits and other Catholic religious you know, living with the people and paying the ultimate cost for that. Right, in this region in particular. And a couple other reasons why I think this matters is it was sobering for me to realize that the two Jesuits that were killed this week were 79 and 80 years old, which means they could have retired a number of years ago, right? That's typically around when churchmen retire, and they've sort of intentionally chose to stay and minister to the people that they had been with for decades. And, you know, immediately after their murder, the Jesuits put out a statement reaffirming that, look, we're going to continue to have a presence here. We're not going to abandon this ministry and this apostolate, which I found really moving. Yeah, no, and that is what Pope Francis has called the Jesuits to do, to be at the margins and with the people who are suffering, the suffering church. So it's I guess, humbling to be in any way affiliated with the work that these brave men and women are doing. And of course, it draws headlines because they were priests, but they weren't necessarily killed because they were priests, right? Yeah, I think it's important to say not to diminish their sacrifice or their suffering in any way, but the fact of the matter is that they were killed because of the same reasons that the people they minister are killed. They're often just normal people doing normal things, caught in the crossfire of violence. And in that way, their suffering is united to the people that they're serving. And I can't think of a better definition of what a priest is supposed to be doing than that. Yes, and you can read more about this story in America. We'll link to it in our show notes. What's our next story, Ashley? Yeah, so on Sunday, the church in the U.S. kicked off a three-year Eucharistic revival, which is a program initiated by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops trying to get Americans excited about the Eucharist again. Yes, this has been described as a movement of Catholics across the United States, healed, converted, formed, and unified by an encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist, is how the bishops have described it. And this whole revival is going to include personal outreach, educational initiatives, devotional activities, So maybe you saw some public processions of the Eucharist on Corpus Christi Sunday. But it's all going to culminate in 2024 with a National Eucharistic Congress planned for 80,000 people in Indianapolis. Yeah, so this is clearly a big priority for the bishops. And some people have criticized them, like, why this? Why now? Don't we celebrate the Eucharist every every Sunday? But I think part of the reason they're doing it— Well, I think people are criticizing because the amount of money it's going to cost. Yes. Right. I think the Eucharistic Congress, they're planning to raise $28 million to fund that. Yes. But the reasons that the bishops have given uh, or that we've intuited is there are polls showing that a large number of Catholics don't quite understand the doctrine of transubstantiation when they're asked in polls, like, do you believe the Eucharist is a symbol or the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Not a lot of Catholics seem to give the correct answer. The the right answer. (laughs) I've always found this funny. Like, it seems like that's the only point of Catholic doctrine that we get pulled about or that we talk Mm -hmm. about all the time. Like, no one is going around asking, like, do you understand or believe that Jesus was born to a virgin, right? Like, and so I'm I'm just sidebar curious about that. (laughs) But it is true that a lot of the times people either say that, oh, it's just a symbol or no, they don't really believe, um, despite identifying as someone who's Catholic. 
Right. And on top of that, we just went through an ongoing two-year pandemic, and COVID-19 kept a lot of Catholics away from Mass and from receiving communion. So that kind of gives us an opportunity as we come back, and some people aren't coming back, to remind ourselves why we call this the source and summit of our faith and why we should care. Yeah, so— that's three-year revival. So we got plenty of time to cover it, and we're definitely going to be talking about it on this show, unpacking some of the questions. But later on in this episode, Ashley and I, during our face-sharing segment, as one friend speaks to another, we're going to be unpacking uh, our own understanding of the Eucharist and how we are, you know, at least planning right now to take part in a personal way in the Eucharistic revival. Yes, so stick around for that and stick around for our conversation with Rebecca Jennings. Joining us from Brooklyn is Rebecca Jennings. Rebecca is a senior correspondent at The Goods by Vox, where she covers social media platforms, influencers, and the creator economy. Welcome to Jesuitical, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and thanks for coming on to talk about this uh, great piece you just wrote. The title is How Catholicism Became a Meme, uh, which was of note to us because we are at least nominally adherents to this meme. Um, so wanted to wanted to bring you on to help unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, I'm ready to talk about it. There's so much to talk about. For our listeners who are not very online, we're going to start at the basics. What does it mean for Catholicism to become a meme? <laughs> what is a meme? How is Catholicism one? Oh, God, what is a meme could be like a book. But sure. basically, a meme is sort of like an internet in-joke, essentially. It's a thing that can get you know remixed in whatever way, a joke format that can get retold, an image that can just be like resurfaced and just repeat itself over and over again. But the way I see it is that Catholicism has become this kind of symbol aesthetically, not necessarily like religiously or like theologically, this aesthetic symbol of like the alternative look. And I would argue fashion and internet culture. And it only works when you kind of put it next to Protestantism as the sort of like normie baseline of like American culture. And because of the way that Protestantism sometimes presents itself in pop culture, which is like, you know, hip, down to earth, cool. Like, you know, we're just like a regular like church. We're like, but there's like music and like, we're not like the regular church. We're a cool church, essentially. We're a cool um, church. We're the yes. goth lunch table. Yes, correct. Well, no, you were saying Protestants try to be the cool church. Yes, but instead they end up looking like the jocks and the preps okay. and the Catholic okay. and the Catholic church ends up looking like the cool goths that are smoking just like cigarettes being, outside, yes, yeah, and wearing okay. rosaries as fashion <laughs> trends. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm wondering, you write in your piece that everyone knows that Catholics are different. I think you know we feel that way as Catholics. When did you first realize that? Catholicism was different than the mainline? Because you grew up Catholic, right? Yeah. So you were not part of sort of the mainline Protestant culture. Right. Yeah. I grew up quite Catholic, going to mass every Sunday, going to catechism. My mom was a catechism teacher. So it didn't really hit me because like I kind of just thought if you were Christian, that meant you were Catholic. And I started going to like friends, Protestant churches. And one was like an Episcopalian one. And I was like, oh my God, they like sit on the floor and like eat bread together at their like Sunday school thing, whatever. <laughs> and then I went to my friend's Lutheran confirmation and the church was just like so bare bones. It was very like tasteful in a sense. Like it was just like a lot of very like stoic 
tall Scandinavian people who would, like, you know, sing these respectful songs. They had like a female reverend pastor person. And, it, you know, it was it was really cool. Like they were talking about like women's rights and gay rights. And I was like, this is awesome. But it was so different than, you know, going to mass, which is like you do this basically the same thing you've done for, you know, not quite. 2000 years, but it feels like it. It wants you to feel like this is like this very old, kind of beautiful, very like divine, spiritual, mysterious kind of tradition. Whereas like the Protestant experience of church is very much like grounded in reality and not so divorced from like the real world experiences that you have at like a business conference or like a sporting event. What Mm. was your experience of church growing up? Because I think for a lot of us who grew up in suburban churches post-Vatican II, there was kind of a move away from the kind of all-Baroque Catholicism you're describing. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's why I say it's like it's only in comparison to Protestant aesthetics that we can really like say that because obviously after Vatican II, it's like our priest was like making homilies about like the Red Sox and like, you know, there was was just like cheesy little jokes in there that were clearly supposed to be like, we're not like a papist kind of weird (laughs) organization. But... Yeah, my experience was basically like, this is how church is. Like, this is like catechism for me or like CCD. Like, we never really learned about the Bible, which like my friends who grew up Protestant are so weirded out by that. I'm like, I can tell you about some saints. I think the saints are really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, my experience was like, you know, I went and that was just what you did. And I was pretty bored for most of it. And that was it. Now, belonging to the like cool Protestant church used to have some like cultural cachet and like Mm -hmm. you write in your piece that that was sort of a number of celebrities would be attached to either Hillsong or there's a number of other ones. But that started to shift recently, right? Yeah. So I think for, you know, like in the early 2010s, late 2010s, there was, you know, the rise of this mega church, like the cool mega church, not necessarily like a Joel Austin type mega church. Justin Bieber mega church. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Justin Bieber, a Kanye mega church. Hillsong is obviously the most famous. And there would be pictures of the Kardashians and Haley Bieber and Selena Gomez, like every kind of LA Christian would just that was the place to be because that organization was like really good at getting celebrities to come and really good at making it seem like this like hip place. But over the past like several years, there's been like several kind of like exposés and documentaries about like what actually was going on there and how they, you know, it's operated clearly like a business. There's allegations of like sexual harassment within the church, like power struggles. And just like, it's clear that some of these organizations care a lot more about like clout than God, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, not to say that the church has not done bad things. Exactly. The Catholic church. But like, I do wish we were a little bit more like entrepreneurial. Like we would have no clue if a celebrity, if like if a random celebrity walked into a random Catholic church, father would have no idea. People would leave him alone. I mean, I feel like- Maybe that's a good thing. I think so, probably. But you can kind of like be anonymous, I think, in most Catholic churches in a way you can't in Protestant ones, So in in some cases. Yeah. I think that's also like what adds to like the cool factor. It's because like you can just like show up and like not have it be a big deal. It's like, it's sort of like an alternative to the very like Instagram-y aesthetic of the past decade. Yeah, you're right. Aesthetically and culturally, Catholicism pairs well with this precise moment. So when did you see the shift happening? When does this moment begin? Uh, what, <laughs> what did you notice bubbling up and why do they pair so well? Yeah. So I think like on a really high level, I think we can talk about aesthetic shifts that like came after the Great Recession. There was this big shift to minimalism because like in short, 
it became like less cool to be like gaudy and ostentatious in the way that people often were in the 2000s, like the McMansion style of like really, really nouveau riche, essentially. And then, you know, in the 2000s, we got a lot of actually, you know, like my home is just like this one wooden bowl and it's very (laughs) spare and clean and whatever. And over the past, like, I would probably say like two or three or four years, there's been a really big like fashion and decor wise, like a really return to like maximalism and, you know, kind of embracing tackiness and embracing like things that five years ago we would have called bad taste or clashy. Is that connected to the rise of Donald Trump? Because it seems like I would describe his aesthetic as gaudy. And so I think that, I mean, this I is think- like a, like a remix, an ironic twist on the Trump golden toilet. <laughs> I would argue, no, I would argue his aesthetic is a continuation of that pre-recession okay. sort of like, I think one magazine called it dictator chic, which is just like bringing in like the most gilded, like obviously like money, 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 like a decor possible. I think of this more as like the grand millennial aesthetic. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it's like, you know, shopping at antique stores rather than like whatever minimalist furniture brand that Instagram was trying to sell you. Well, I feel like the pandemic, like once you had to spend your like entire waking life in your home, it turns out minimalism wasn't that interesting. It's like right. all the things you had to look at were totally bare. Um, right. I don't know if that had anything to accelerate that maybe. I mean, I think the pandemic is so like intertwined with all of these kind of cultural shifts for sure. Especially for me, like I became such like, I walk around my neighborhood and I just like, every time I see even a frame or like a shitty painting, I'll just like grab it. I'm like, I can do something with this. Like Uh this is art. This is like from my neighborhood, whatever. So I think there's that element. And obviously Catholic imagery is so tied with emotion and over the top, as one religion professor I talked to said, it's campy, like it can be really campy. And I think there's an appreciation of that over the past several years. I think that's one element. Well, the the pandemic also drove all of us online. Yeah. (laughs) And so how did these trends manifest themselves there? Yeah, I started to see like a year or two ago, I saw a couple of TikToks where like a girl would be like, showing a couple pictures of like a Protestant church or a mega preacher or like some kind of like, what's the phrase? Um, oh, prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. Yes. Which is obviously very like cheesy and like, yeah. And then the music changed and suddenly like we got to see these like beautiful images of cathedrals and like old Gothic churches from like hundreds of years ago and, and Latin mass and like altar servers and stuff. And basically, like, the point of the video was, like, look how much prettier my religion is. Like, you wish your your Christianity looked like this. And then I, that was just, like, one example. And I saw a couple other, like, you know, like, Catholic superiority complex kind of TikToks that I thought were really funny because I was like, oh, yeah, I do kind of have a superiority complex over, <laughs> you know, that, that I went to the good one. <laughs> well, and it's um, people, like, with the superiority complex, but there's also, like, another category of people who don't practice anymore, but maybe are attached culturally. Could you unpack that a little bit too? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been talking to people about this for a while and a lot of what I see are people that are figuring out their spirituality or, you know, what they believe independent of organized religion. And I think there's a lot of like bits of internet culture that kind of play into that. Like one was this meme account on Instagram called I need God in every moment of my life. It's very like goofy. It's very like haphazard, very absurdist, surreal, but it actually is run by four people who were raised very Christian and are now sort of like toying with what 
they believe as adults. And so I had a really great conversation with one of the founders who, you know, they were basically like, no one can tell whether it's a joke or it's earnest, but it definitely leans more earnest, even though it is like kind of camouflaged by the aesthetics of like the secular internet. So is it fair to say there is a spectrum of people who are like totally doing it ironically and doing it earnestly in that, would you say most people are somewhere in the middle of that or? I don't know. I mean, first of all, I don't think that like this has anything to do with more young people turning to Catholicism. I think this is kind of divorced from that as a concept. It's more just like people are sort of revisiting, you know, what they were raised with or what they knew about the church. And now they're sort of toying with those ideas in a more modern way and like more individual way. So you follow internet trends. Do you see this as just another trend that's going (laughs) to fizzle out in a couple of years or a couple of months, given the speed that things move now? Yeah, I mean, the way I see it is sort of like Catholicism occupies this place that kind of already intertwines with like some other like aesthetic shifts. I think like this renewed interest in like fairy tales and angels and like royalty and the aristocrats, like there's like a very like old world fascination going on right now in just culture writ large. And I think Catholicism is kind of an extension of that. So in that sense, like, yes, but also at the same time, like, Catholicism is something that's not going to go away because this this meme because went this away. this trend failed. Yeah. We're going to be totally and, unaware that it's happening yeah. while, while it's happening. Well, right. So you're, you're saying this is kind of an aesthetic that's looking back. It's almost reactionary. So what are they reacting against in the current culture? Yeah, that's a great question. I think like if you've been following fashion discourse over the past 10 years, it's been a lot of like how mainstream media incorporates or mainstream fashion incorporates cultural products from marginalized groups and kind of appropriates them into like sort of like a costume. I think you could see that with Brazilian butt lifts or something. It's like, we're going to make something trendy that like black and brown people have always had and have always been demonized for. But now suddenly like mainstream culture is now appropriating that and making it like okay to put on. And I think because there's been such a backlash to that on social media, in the mainstream media, which, you know, is responding to social media criticism, that a lot of people that work in fashion or are kind of like fashion trendsetters are looking to previous aesthetics that aren't necessarily tied to one race. And I think Catholicism is sort of like this eternal well of inspiration that people can draw from that doesn't necessarily mean you're appropriating something from another race or from a certain race, but rather, you know, you're appropriating it from a religion that many people of many races have practiced for years. Picking up on that, we were talking about, I guess, how should committed Catholics, wherever you want to define that, like feel about this general yeah. trend, uh, particularly appropriation, because it's not a racial or ethnic identity, but it's still like something that is, you know, deeply meaningful in a protected class for sure. And yeah. from my end, I was like, it feels almost like people are kind of like picking at things like, almost like swooping in like vultures and picking the parts they like and leaving with it. But the parts that's alarming for me is that vultures only feed off of dead things. And so (laughs) it's actually like a really troubling sign, Mm. at least to someone who's still committed to this. And I'm not sure how to react either. I try not to get too pearl clutchy about stuff, but I won't lie. Like there are some things I see where I'm like, okay, come on. Like that actually means something a, a lot to a lot of people. Yes. And for it to be toyed with in a certain way, it is, there, there is a line. I don't know where it is, 
but I feel like maybe we are too casual with crossing it. I think one of the lines I would draw, something you share in your piece, is like a bikini that has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on it. Yeah. That <laughs> that crossed a line for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I think that's certainly the point of it, uh, is to cross that line. And, yeah. you know, like that, that brand is obviously like there's a big, big dose of irony there and just being like, you know, very nihilistic about sacred things. And I think one actually, like, one that I talked to with Kyle, who's one of the people behind the meme account, they were like, I really didn't like Kourtney Kardashian and Travis Barker's wedding in Italy, where they like, it wasn't even in a church. It was like they had created this kind of like set design to make it look like a cathedral in Italy. And like both of them have been going to Hillsong, like they don't really have any association with Catholicism. It was very much like a pastiche or like a parody of a mass, Mm. which is like a little icky. You mentioned the word nihilism, and that is one of the things I wanted to unpack from your piece is, is the person who created the Holy Trinity bikini talks about his work as it's a way of using nihilism to move past nihilism. Did you understand (laughs) what he meant by that? I mean, I think you can kind of say anything. To me, I see this as like, you know, it's an intentionally kind of provocative thing to create. It's just like a little, like it's shock value. You know, one thing that's interesting is that in the church, people that gravitate towards this more traditional pre-Vatican II Baroque aesthetic tend to lean more conservative, both politically and socially. Mm -hmm. Is that the case with the wider culture? No, certainly not. I don't think anybody that is like enjoying these memes or this fashion or this aesthetic has any real connection to like pre-Vatican II Catholicism more than just aesthetically. It's a cherry picking of a religious aesthetic to serve whatever means that people want. And a lot of those ends that they're trying to me are commercial. So so they are not aware of the liturgy wars that are happening in a very <laughs> real way in the U.S. Catholic Church right now. I mean, who's to say? Like, I'm sure people that actually, like, you know, identify as Catholic or, you know, mm-hmm. still follow the stuff, sure they do. But I don't know if those same people will have the same kind of, like, pick and choose approach to this aesthetic. Okay. So the Vatican has invited you. You're strolling up St. Peter's Square. You sit down (laughs) and a cardinal says to you, Rebecca, hey, we read your piece. Uh, We're fascinated by it. What do you think we should do about it? (laughs) That's hilarious. Put your consulting hat on. What's your advice for random cardinal? Uh, I think nothing, because if this were about Protestantism, they'd be like, okay, how can we like do this to like make us seem cooler or something. But I think the beauty of Catholicism is that they don't give a shit. It's just going to be what it is. And like, this is not something that I think that they need to put a lot of concern into, I guess. I think the Catholic church has a lot better ways to use their time rather than worrying about like what 20 year olds are doing on Instagram. But do you think there's a way they could like, like I'm thinking when they, the Met Gala had the Catholic imagination. They Mm -hmm. at least like, they had one of two ways of reacting, which one of was like, how dare you? This is like very offensive. Or you know what? Yeah, you can have some of our stuff. And they like sent stuff Mm -hmm. from the Vatican Mm -hmm. that could be put on display there. Do you think there's any way that like we could at least engage in a way that's not off-putting or that makes it uncool? Yeah, sure. I mean, anybody that like likes this kind of stuff, I think absolutely. And I know like, so I've heard of like theology professors who like love these meme accounts and like they think that they're like actually really, really good ways of getting people who don't otherwise like take a lot of time to think about God or religion or beliefs to think about them. And I do think that there's like a lot of real value in that. In terms of like the Vatican, do I think they need to be concerned? No. But I do think that like individual like Catholics who find this stuff interesting and thought provoking 
can really like learn a lot from it and use it as a way of engaging with a public who might otherwise not even think about Catholicism at all. Mm. Well, as a Jesuit podcast, we try to find God in all things. (laughs) And so your piece helped us to do that on TikTok, which is a place where I'm not quite comfortable yet. I feel like (laughs) the old person standing in a corner at a school dance. (laughs) Everyone does. There's so many many old people on there. You'll be fine. (laughs) All right. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for talking to us. We do have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests. And that's if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, (gasps) fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh, oh my God. I love this question, but I hate it because it feels so high stakes. Okay, I'll say my mom. I'll say my mom. All right. Tell us the case for your mom. So my mom was raised very Catholic. She was always like, you know, like very religious. Her family was, my dad's family was. And she taught catechism. And then as I grew older, I thought she did something which was really cool, which is when our church refused to admit that, like, you know, if you had an abortion, you weren't going to hell, she quit. And so she was like, this is not the Catholicism that I identify with. This is not, you know, what what I believe that, like, true Christianity is. And I just I really admire that she stood up for herself in that moment. Okay, well, you can send this to her afterwards, too. (laughs) I will. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, thanks so much for writing about Catholicism and coming on the show to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. Ashley, I don't know about you, but I'm getting really excited for our trip to Italy. But I was wondering, how was your Italian? Not great. I had always, growing up, I thought learning Spanish would make it so like easy to transfer that to Italian, but they're quite different. (laughs) Yes, yes. They're false cousins almost, I would say. And, you know, I've been trying to brush up on, I took some in college, but uh, I've got some apps on my phone where I'm trying to do some brushing up. But if we're honest, those apps are not enough to really get into a language. And that's why I've been looking to Wondrium. They've got this course called Learning Italian, step-by-step and region-by-region, where Professor Christina Olson is going through a lot of the basics of the Italian language. Also, while all teaching about the different regions of Italy. So it's a great overview, both of Italian culture and Italian language. Yes. So if you're joining Jesuitical's pilgrimage to Italy in September, and if you're not, it's not too late to sign up, you might want to check this out. But Wondrium also has so many other courses. They have audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by credible world-class experts. Yeah, and it doesn't have any of the pressure of homework or grades, and I love that because I got to admit, I love school, never loved homework or grades. But we know you're going to benefit from Wondrium too, and that's why we want you to sign up today because Wondrium is offering our listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. And to get this offer, you'll need to visit our special URL. It's wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. Sign up today, and we hope to see you in Italy. The Master of Arts in Sacred Scripture from the Oblate School of Theology fosters a love for God's Word through an in-depth study of the entire Bible. Courses may be taken full-time or part-time, in face-to-face or online. Visit the website for more information. That's ost.edu slash ma-sacred-scripture.
You can purchase gifts at Inspire Designs, an online store presenting the original artwork of Ursuline Sisters. See images of saints and angels, the natural world, religious icons, and sacred mandalas, available as posters, framed, and canvas prints. Go to inspireddesigns.org to see the possibilities. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? We got a lot. Um, this is sort of like the parish announcements phase of our podcast. Also, I why didn't we call housekeeping parish announcements? Yeah. That's, that's such an obvious name. All right. There's so always next, next season, season. Next season, we're rebranding <laughs> housekeeping as parish announcements. So please be seated. Want to celebrate some new Patreon supporters this week? Thanks so much to Ken, who signed up, and everybody who signed up there. We've got five people that we chose from our Patreon list at random who are getting signed copies of Father James Martin's Jesus of Pilgrimage. So they're getting that in the mail this week. So we've got a lot of things going on and things planned for the summer with Patreon. We're looking at doing some reading circles or book clubs. We're going to put out sort of questionnaire, see what you guys want to do. And we'll probably be popping in with some bonus episodes too this summer. So if you're tired of Jesuitical and you don't want anything to do with us for the summer, that's fine. But if you'd like to engage with us some more, sign up at patreon.com slash americamedia. And if you're not tired of Jesuitical and want to spend 12 days with us in Italy, it is not too late to sign up for our pilgrimage. We are doing a great trip, September 17th to September 28th. We're going to Rome, Assisi, Tuscany, Siena, and Venice, and it's going to be fantastic. Father Eric Sundrup, our faith formation director, is joining us, which is really exciting. He's going to be saying mass, having some spiritual conversations. So will Ashley and I. It's going to be a great trip. So to find out more, we have a link in the show notes where you can read about the trip and sign up. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at jesuitical at americamedia.org. Yep. And finally, that listener survey that's been in the show notes the past couple of weeks, this is the last time we're going to put it in there. But please take a couple seconds, fill it out. Let us know what you thought about this past season. We're going to be looking at it this summer as we look ahead to next season. So again, that's in the show notes, the 2022 annual Jesuitical listener survey. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And Zach, as we mentioned before, we're talking about the Eucharist. That's right. And it became clear, (laughs) I brought this and I was like, you know, I feel like we should talk about the Eucharist this week just because, you know, it was Corpus Christi this past week, this Eucharistic revival's coming on. And I realized that it was a little bit, we stumbled through the conversation a little bit. It's not something that we talk about very often, I would say, not you and I in particular, but like, I don't know how often I talk about it with my friends, even the ones who are, I would say, like sort of Catholic nerds. Yeah. Or even how much I hear about it specifically and concretely in homilies, I would say. Or, you know, I do spiritual reading and read about, you know, I read a lot of faith sources and it's not something I've really focused in on. And I found when you brought it up, it's, you know, just something I've kind of taken for granted. You know, I affirmed that I believe whatever the church teaches, even if I don't completely understand it, and I'm kind of happy to just let that sit there. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's funny. At one point in my life, it was like really prominent in my own spiritual life. Grew up as a life teen youth group kid, and there's a pretty big emphasis on Eucharistic adoration and praise and worship. And so that was a pretty formative part of my spiritual life. I'd say probably five, 10 years ago. And in college too, I was much more focused on sort of like getting it as often as I could. I went to daily mass a lot more. Now, I don't know. I think taking it for granted, as you said, is probably a place where, I don't know, part of me says that's the evil spirit 
right? Like saying like, you're not focused on this yeah. enough. <laughs> but I will say that through this, I did realize that there is this kind of anxiety or fear or hesitation where it's like, okay, I want to just like accept the fact that, you know, this is actually God on the altar. But I also don't want to like engage too deeply because I'm afraid that if I pray about it too much or think about it too much that all of a sudden I'm going to, I'm not going to understand it or I'm going to come to the wrong conclusion or it's going to be too much for me. And so there is this like hesitancy to maybe pull back a little bit. Yeah, no, I totally share that. I like, if you asked me what to actually explain transubstantiation, I would fumble through it and know to say the right words and not maybe <laughs> know exactly what I'm saying. And and interrogating that is scary. But when we were talking to Father Sundrup in his Ignatian way, it was like, okay, if fear is what's keeping you from looking more deeply into this and what you actually believe and what it means to you, then that's probably not the good spirit yeah. keeping you from that. Yeah. And it's also just been like, a rough go for the Eucharist in the headlines, I would say, mm -hmm. right? We've got this revival coming around right now, but I feel like for two years, anytime it's come up in headlines, it's either people don't believe it, or we're talking about who to bar from communion, where you fall on that side of the issue. Anytime it kind of gets dragged through the political mud, it feels a little icky, but I'm looking forward to taking the next, I'll say year, it's three years is a long time, but <laughs> the next year to really look into what my own relationship to the Eucharist is and, and how it fits in the church's life today. Yeah, no, I think I would like to do that. And one thing that I kind of neglected in recent years is doing the kind of like super nerdy theological reading that really, you know, brought me to my faith in my own way during college. And I sometimes now kind of like, I don't know, denigrate, but say like, oh, that's not like that's too intellectual. <laughs> like, you don't need to be in college to be a good Catholic. But it was a really helpful route for me to study and to read. And that was a way I did find God more in a real way in college. Yeah, I think that's going to be one way to do it. And also just like cranking up the devotions too, right? Like, so I'm going to try to go to adoration a little bit more during this next year. But one of the simplest things I, I used to do this, and I need to get back into it, is I used to offer up like my reception of communion for like a special intention when I would receive. And I kind of got away from that, but that used to be a way to like really focus, I don't know, my prayer when that happened. And so that's another small thing I'm going to do in the more immediate. But this is going to be something that we're hoping to talk about a number of times over these next three years. So if you got questions or comments or ways that the Eucharist is super important in your prayer life, please let us know. Write us an email. You can reach us at jesuitical at americamedia.org. Otherwise, stay tuned. All right, I will get us out of here one last time. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Kira's last episode. Kira, thank you so much for everything you've done for the show. We could not do this without you. I have no idea how to turn on anything in the studio. But other than that, you've been a great companion in this ministry. So best of luck, and we are going to miss you. Yes, we will miss you, Kira. This week, our sound engineer is Frank Tucson. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next fall.